Um, this is kind of a weird thing, isn't it? Um, I've, I've likened this pastoral search process to uh, to dating, like kind of trying to get to know each other, like, hey, are we a good match? Um, but it's so exciting to be with you this morning. Uh, this process started a long time ago, uh, in, back in January, and so it's very surreal to finally be here with you. I was able to, to visit a couple months ago, and just been so heartened by the people here getting to know the PSC, the staff, and so it's a real pleasure to be here. So Tommy Way just started a sermon series on First Thessalonians, as you might know, and today we're taking a break from that to go in to another letter from Paul, First Corinthians. Now, I just want to acknowledge the elephant in the room. This is a weird thing that we're doing. Like, it's kind of like I'm trying out. Um, and that's a strange thing, right? I think trying out is probably the, a bad metaphor for it. What, what I want to encourage you to do is think about this as a, a matter of discernment. A matter of discerning. Is, is, am I going to be a candidate that preaches the gospel to you? That unpacks the word? And that's, and I'm also trying to discern. So we're both very dependent on the spirit this morning. But as I was thinking about this task, I think the, the passage I was led to was this beautiful verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I thought, that's a really good verse for me. That's my goal. That's my ambition, my aspiration, as I consider the call here at IGC. One last caveat before we get started. I have a moderate condition of cerebral palsy. Um, I am awkward just by nature, but that's not. I'm also I move awkwardly, uh, and and it's caused by my cerebral palsy. So I just want to let you know that. Now I'm sure that y'all have heard of humble bragging. Humble bragging, according to the very scholarly crowdsourced Urban Dictionary. A humble brag is, quote, when you, usually consciously, try to get away with bragging about yourself by couching it in a phony show of humility. So, like, you know when you're in an interview and they ask you, like, what's your most prominent weakness? And you turn it into a way to show your strength, right? Like, I just care too much, right? I'm really perfectionistic. In other ways, in other words, like, let me humbly tell you that I think I'm capable of perfection. It's a useful term, humble bragging. Although it taints a beautiful word, humble. The older term was less precise. False modesty, remember that? False modesty. A joint Harvard-UNC study revealed that humble bragging actually evokes a more negative response than just pure boasting. Humble braggers did more damage to their likability with others than normal braggers. And the reason, explained the researchers, was that at least those boasters explicitly were authentic, right? So we're going to look at boasting today. And you might think, you might think, well, I don't really boast. Careful. Is that a boast? Ooh. We got, we got meta. Um, my hope is that God's Word actually does a surgery on us and, and shows us, reveals to us how we do boast, and more importantly, on what we boast. 
So I've divided this sermon up into three points. Before we get started, though, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Lord, we ask for your spirit to come. We thank you that you're a God who speaks to us, that you love, love to speak to us, to tell us about who you are and about who we are in you. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would speak clearly. Father, I I confess to you my own weakness. Would you be strong? Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So our three points today are the boast of the flesh, the boast of the flesh, the boast of grace, and the boast in the cross. The boast of the flesh, the boast of grace, and the boast in the cross. So first, the boast of the flesh. So let's lay out the context here. So Corinth was a coastal city, meaning that it was a cosmopolitan, diverse place where, where people are constantly rubbing shoulders with each other. There was lots of trade. Um, there was a new rich. The, the Romans took over, uh, when the Romans took over Corinth from the Greeks, uh, they actually colonized it with a bunch of freed slave uh, people. And so there wasn't a lot of nobility in Corinth. Um, a lot of new merchants that had kind of gotten rich quickly. And the Apostle Paul had planted a church here in Corinth, and he was writing them to, to correct them. He was concerned. Now, Paul mentions boasting in verse 29 and verse 31. I've been watching a documentary uh, called the, uh, the Last Dance about the 1990s Chicago Bulls, and there's this whole debate about whether Michael Jordan is the GOAT, right, the greatest of all time. The debate was exacerbated when LeBron James, who I'm sure we don't like here, LeBron James, uh, called himself the GOAT after a very, I'm sure, memorable uh, NBA Finals. But isn't that against the rules, right, to call yourself the GOAT? Now, not many of us, I imagine, struggle with that kind of boasting. It's not socially acceptable. But you know, you can boast without speaking, like the kind of car that you drive, or your house, your clothing, what school you attended, what school your kids attend. Sometimes we boast in our silence, like when we don't take responsibility for our sins, our weaknesses. Have you ever boasted in a fight with your spouse or a friend? I never do that. Really? (laughs) Or I, I always boasting. But Paul gives us here a deeper meaning of boasting. In verse 29, look at verse 29. It says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, the way that Paul uses the term boast is more akin to to prove oneself or even trust in. So how will you prove yourself before God? When you present to God, you say, "This this is who I am. This is why I exist. We, we all labor to prove ourselves to our parents, to our children, even to ourselves. Boasting. And Paul names specific areas we boast in verse 26. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He names three attributes there. There's first wisdom. That is intelligence, intellect. Where were you educated? And then he mentions power. That is influence over others. It can be social influence, cultural, political, familial. 
and then noble birth, which covers inheritance, income, right? Back then, income was a lot more stable. It was about who you were connected, who your family was. That phrase, worldly standards, that Paul uses, is actually the Greek word for flesh. Sarks. Flesh according to the flesh. In other words, what we seek to prove ourselves in our own natural abilities, like who we are, what we're trying to achieve. Now, worldly standards is not an unfaithful translation because our fleshly nature is always shaped by the culture we live in. Right? What are the things that our culture tends to boast in? Now, I grew up in a really blue-collar region of Texas. Uh, we used to say that uh, you could you could uh, look further and see less than anywhere else in the country. Um, and the fleshly, worldly worth of where, where I'm from is, for a young man, is athletic prowess, especially on the, on the football field. If you've ever watched Friday Night Lights, that's real. It's, that's where I come from. It's not athletic prowess, that's your flesh. And then I moved to the East Coast. And on the East Coast, it was education. What school did you go to? Ivy League, liberal arts. Um, what degrees do you have? It was also wealth, inheritance. And then I had the unfortunate uh, circumstance to live in L.A. And in L.A., it's fashion, beauty, right? Your unique brand, your personality. Like, these are, you see, these are the things that we boast in, that we strive after, that what make a good life. And nothing is inherently wrong with any of these things. Money, education, intelligence, athleticism, they're gifts from God. And we are to steward them. What's problematic is when they become our boast. What do you boast in? The movie Chariots of Fire is about two runners at the 1924 Olympics. And Harold Abrams is an English Jew who's undergone great persecution and anti-Semitism. And before this race, he's about to run his race, he confesses. He says, quote, And now, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again, and I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. Ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. Do you hear that? What justifies your existence? What are you boasting in? Who are you? The great psychologist Alfred Adler, he had this, this keen insight that sometimes our boasting is actually a, a means of covering up. That, that sometimes we're compensating for something, some dramatic weakness. And so we, we don't want someone to see that, and so we're going to boast in this other thing that we're good at. So here's a litmus test to begin to think about your own boasting. What do you feel better about yourself? Than another. Like when you start comparing yourself to someone, well, at least I have this. They don't have that, but I have this. Right? When, you, when you're comparing yourself to your spouse, your friend, well, we, we, we're better parents than them. Right? When you are starting to feel superior or inferior, you can, you can be sure that your flesh is boasting. It's about to boast. Now, there are several problems with boasting in the flesh. The first one is that it's always relative, right? It's always relative. There will always be someone faster, better, smarter, 
prettier than you. Which is why Paul confronts him. I love Paul in verse 26. Listen to how he, how he starts again. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, he's like, chill. You guys were not that smart. You were not that rich. You were not that powerful. It's relative. It's, it always is the flesh. It's a bad boast to begin with. A boasting in the flesh also promotes division. Paul begins 1 Corinthians by saying, hey, there are divisions in the church and that's wrong. And that's what our flesh does. It promotes divisions when we boast, hey, I'm better than them. I'm better than them. But there are more problems with boasting, which leads us to our next point. So we looked at the boast of the flesh. Now let's look at the boast of grace. The boast of grace. The human instinct to boast actually goes back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam and Eve a simple command. He defined the good life, which is to obey me, walk with me, be with me. But the serpent, Satan, says in Genesis 3, 5, he said, for God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Do you hear that boast? You will be like God. Do you hear the, the, the origins of boasting? That's the heart of it. To be like God. We try to define and achieve good, truth, and beauty apart from God, which is futile and silly because who is the one true, good, beautiful, and true one? It's God. Now, Paul is actually using, he's, he's using Jeremiah chapter 9 right here. He's unpacking that. So let, let me go to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. This says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, and let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. What God says here is, like, those things that you're going to boast in, your, your might, your power, your strength, your wisdom, they're meaningless. Because compared to me, compared to the God who created all things, they're insignificant. It's like me saying I'm the greatest basketball player in the world. That's absurd and ridiculous. Absurd. But, but God, knowing the greatest basketball player in the world, would be incredible. That's what God is saying. I am the one worth knowing. I am the one worth boasting in. He's the only sound basis for boasting. And that makes sense, right? Because like the things that we boast in, our intelligence, our relationships, where did they come from? They came from the Lord. Did, did you decide what parents you were going to be born to? Did you decide to be smart at a certain thing or not? No. It's all from God. We are actually most sane. We're most sane when we are humble and we recognize that God is the one who gave us everything. Everything. That's what it means to begin to boast in the Lord. That He is the one. Everything that I have is, is from Him. Is from Him. And, and the Lord is not content to leave us in our arrogance. Look at verse 27. 
says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God is trying to get our attention to say, listen, what you're boasting in is ridiculous. There's a reason why we love underdog stories. We love underdog stories. I just watched a, a movie about Kurt Warner, right? The most, uh, he led the, the 1999-2000 St. Louis Rams to, to the Super Bowl undrafted. It was his first, it was his rookie year. He played for the University of Northern Iowa. And you're like, I've never heard of that. Exactly. Exactly. Kurt Warner, the underdog. He shamed the strong. Shamed the strong. And that's what God is saying. I want you strong, you wise, to realize that there is something different. That I am the one. God in his mercy actually confronts our pride to try to get our attention. But then Paul lays out a spiritual law here. He says, God chooses the underdog, the nobody, the nothing. And we see this throughout the scripture. Isn't it interesting that God's people, right, the Jews, where did they come from? They came from a 90, a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old barren woman. And God tells them, you're going to have offspring like the stars. Or think about Moses, the very mouthpiece of God. He's a stutterer. Or think about David, the run to the lot, and he is going to be the warrior of Israel. Like, time and time again, God is choosing the weak, God is choosing the foolish, so that he can show us that he is the one. He is the powerful, almighty God. But here, I want you to see what God's boast actually is. The Lord's boast. Did you Did you catch... Did you catch it over and over again? It says, God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low. So often our boasts are about trying to get control. If I can get this much money, then I can control my life. If I can get into this school, then I can control. But here, God is saying, I am the one who controls. I am the one who chooses. And yet he chooses out of sheer grace. The Lord's boast is this, it is grace. He says, I am the one who will choose. The weak, the foolish, they don't deserve it. But God gives grace. God gives grace. And and not only that, but the Lord actually boasts of his grace. In the Old Testament, when Moses asks to see God's face, you know what God does? He declares his name. And his name, listen to this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Do you hear all of a sudden it confronts our flesh? Our flesh wants to, our flesh constantly goes to a works righteousness. Like I want to prove it, I want to achieve it, I want to accomplish it. And God says, no, I am a God of grace. That's who I am. Grace levels all our boasting. We don't deserve any of it. I want to take you back to, uh, my high school uh, physics class. In, in, in AP physics, uh, we had to construct a hovercraft and a mousetrap car, all these things. And I was terrible at physics. Terrible. My dad was a college professor who taught physics. And so my modus operandi 
would be to not work on the project until the night before it was due, and then go to my dad and say, can you build this? And he would, because he was gracious. And I made an A in high school physics. Now, did I deserve that? Oh, no. I had no room to boast. I had no room to boast because God, because, because my dad did it all. He did it all. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that don't you see, don't you see that, that God has chosen you? God has chosen you and you have no room to boast. And yet you can boast in the Lord and His grace for you. And look at verse 30. Look at the riches of this grace. And because of Him, that is because of the Lord, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, all those things that we so long for, we long for security, for significance, those things that we boast in, riches. In Jesus, we have it all. This gift of grace that we no longer need to be insecure. In fact, the simplest Christian, the simplest Christian is wiser than the most brilliant Harvard professor who does not know the Lord. Right? The poorest Christian is richer than Jeff Bezos. The, the most basely born Christian is more noble than the King of England. Because this is what Jesus, this is who Jesus is. He gives us all of these wonderful, wonderful riches, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Righteousness, that is a different standard. We can stand before the Lord. Sanctification, that is a new power. That we can actually live according to how God has made us. And redemption. Remember that desire to be noble-born? To belong? Redemption is... It's the truth, the doctrine that we have been purchased by God. We belong. That is the boast of grace. The boast of grace. Now finally, the boast of the cross. Paul gets personal here in chapter 2. Look back at chapter 2. And I, verse 1, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, and then skip down to verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not impossible words of wisdom. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, hey, listen, in the church there's a new standard, of uh, a new cultural standard. It's not power. It's not wisdom. And I, I also, when I came, I abided by that standard. I was weak. I was trembling. I was fearful. He did not come with the most intelligent sermons. He did not come imitating the, the Greek rhetoric that was so popular in Athens, just 50 miles north. He came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Remember compensation? Compensation tries to hide your weakness. What does Paul do here? He names it. He says, I am weak. Because when you have Jesus, you actually have the freedom to name your weakness. If you have all of Christ's redemption and his sanctification, you can name the fact that you are weak because you are. That's the truth. 
That's the truth. And the key, why why Paul does this, is buried in verse 2. We started here, and we're going to end here. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, I know, um, you know, when you've been around the church for a long time, the cross kind of loses some of its novelties, its significance, its depth of meaning. Listen to how the 20th century English writer Dorothy Sayers talks about the cross. She was living in a day when the British, in the 1940s, when the British elites wanted, they wanted the morality and the, the virtue of Christianity without the doctrine, the theology. And she says this, It is the dogma that is the theology that is the drama. Not beautiful phrases, not comforting sentiments, not, nor vague aspirations to loving kindness and uplift, nor the promise of something nice after death, but the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world lived in the world and passed through the grave and the gate of death. Show that to the heathen, and they may not believe it, but at least they may realize that here is something that a man might be glad to believe. In other words, what the cross is, it is this terrifying moment in which God himself, Jesus Christ on the cross, is crucified. He is the ultimate show of weakness. Isn't it? Jesus divested himself of all power and authority. The religious powers were in on it. The political powers were in on it. And yet this fundamental act of weakness is how God demonstrates his power. His power for salvation. This is how we were saved, by this ultimate act of weakness. And so what Paul is saying is, I come in weakness. Why? Because that's how my Savior came. Because when I am weak, he is strong. When I am powerless, he is powerful. Friends, I, I preach this to you and I preach it to me. Because the fundamental reality is that you are weak. You are weak. Even the most strong, powerful, smart, the truth is that we are weak. And yet, in the gospel, we are strong in our weakness. Because God loves, God loves to make us trophies of his grace. He is powerful. And I need to hear this. Because let me tell you, if Lord willing you call me to be your pastor, I am going to fail. I'm going to sin. I'm going to screw up. I'm going to, that's not my confidence, friends. My confidence is that when I am weak, that He is strong. Right, Paul says, I probably decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. In my speech, my message were not impossible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit, and a power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men and the power of God. That's what we're dealing with. You see, the gospel is this beautiful, simple thing that when we preach it, the Spirit promises to be there in power. That is the most, that is the most powerful thing in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ because it overcame death itself. So, If I'm going to be with you, 
You need to know that I'm going to be weak. And you need to know that it's okay for you to be weak. And finally, what, what does this mean for a church? I want to end right here. What does this mean for the church? There are lots of churches that, that, that try to apply worldly wisdom to grow. Like ever since the 1950s and 60s, American Christianity has been obsessed with social science and advertising. Like, we need to get the church growth movement. Like, let's grow the church. And there are such good motives for that. Right? There are people that want to take the gospel to every person. And yet, don't you see here for Paul that the medium, the medium needs to align with the message. It's not that medium is the message, but it matters a whole lot what the medium is. He says, I did not come with this grand strategy, this incredible rhetoric, this great advertising of how to grow a church. I came in weakness and in trembling. And that was the way that God grew the church. Why? Because that is the, the gospel is all you need. It is the power of God for salvation. So, what does that mean for the church then? That means that we can be content, content with just the mere preaching of the gospel, the mere loving of one another, the mere just being the church. That's what God has called us to be. And friends, I want to end with an encouragement to you. You're already doing this. You're already doing this. One of the things that first attracted me to you was your pastoral search packet in which you were boasting in grace Listen to this boast of grace. Your packet said, Our church name is unusual. But it, it, and it is. <laughs> but it suits us because our church's story bears the marks of God's indelible grace, a grace that cannot be erased. In the face of any challenges and trials, our church is committed to a simple yet profound mission to follow Jesus and to help others follow him. We see the hand of God working in our midst, and we sense the unending grace that he extends to us, and we strive to be a church that honors him. We are a small church, but our relationships run deep. We're a multi-ethnic community bound together by genuine love, seeking to live life together in the Bay Area. Our very existence is a triumph of God's grace. Do you hear the boasting in God's grace? That's who you are. That's who you are. Friends, we don't need to boast in our flesh any longer. We have the most incredible boast that Jesus Christ has made us his own. Has made us his own. We can have peace in that boast. Would you pray with me? Oh, our Father in heaven, our hearts so struggle to believe that we might have redemption and sanctification and righteousness on totally Jesus' behalf. That he did it for us. Lord, we want so much to prove ourselves. Oh Lord, but we thank you that you welcome us. That you've made us your boast. You are so gracious. Thank you that you've taken grace into your very name. And we pray that we would live lives that honor that grace. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.